This is an AMI podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Paralympics have begun, and blind skiers from around the world are in China to compete for gold. Today, we look back on how competitive blind skiing got started, and we hear from Mike May, a pioneer in the sport. On tips and tech, Mike's going to give advice on how to achieve high speeds on the hill. But before we get started, Lily has some information on some out-of-the-world snow. Come on, Lewis, I'm getting cold. Let's go find Lily. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Hey, Lily. Hi. Hey, last winter, you taught us about all sorts of different names about snow. Oh, yeah. All the really scientific-sounding ones. And then the last one was Snurt, which was just snow and dirt. Snurt's my favorite. Lily, these are all names for snow that are here on Earth. Mm. What about interplanetary snow? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky for you, I know all about that topic. Do you? School us. Well, there's... Earth's moon. At one time, we thought the moon was bone dry, but NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has shown us otherwise. It has spotted small patches of ice and shadowy craters near the north and south poles of the moon. Who's going to be the first person to ski on the moon? Who's going to be the first person to make a snow angel on the moon? Someone already brought a golf club up there, but it's been a while since uh, someone walked on the moon. There's also Mars. Uh, the north and south pole of Mars have ice caps. Not the ones from Tim Hortons. <laughs> ice caps from Tim Hortons. Ice caps. <laughs> no, I'm sure they don't have that on Mars. Um, <laughs> these ice caps are made mainly of water ice, which is the same kind of ice you'd find on Earth. However, the snow that falls there is made of carbon dioxide. On Earth, frozen carbon dioxide is what we call dry ice. In spring, because I, I didn't know they had seasons... Uh, the seasonal ice changes to water vapor. You think the snow is red like the planet? I think it might be pink. I want to have red snow, not pink snow. Red snow looks like a crime scene. <laughs> what else you got? There's also Io. Of all of Jupiter's moons, you may not think of its volcanic moon. Io, literally Io, is a place for snow. But the moon has snowflakes made of sulfur. The sulfur shoots into space from a volcano on Io's surface in space. The sulfur quickly freezes to form yellow snowflakes. <laughs> yellow snow. That f- what do they tell you about yellow snow? <laughs> it's an enjoyable treat. <laughs> Europa. Yeah. Europa is another one of Jupiter's moons. It's an icy world with a liquid ocean below the frozen surface. Europa's icy cracked crust and subsurface ocean may be one of the best places in the solar system for life to have taken hold. So less about skiing and more about ice fishing? Fishing, yeah, yeah fishing. That's my kind of planet. Oh, I know. Oh, my gosh. And then there's Enceladus. Saturn's moon, Enceladus, has geysers that shoot water vapor out into space. Mm. It then freezes and falls back to the surface as snow. Some of the ice also escapes Enceladus to become part of Saturn's rings. The water vapor comes from a heated ocean that lies beneath the moon's icy surface, and all this ice... And snow makes Enceladus one of the brightest objects in our solar system. And one of the meanest giants in Greek mythology. (laughs) it's not. It is. Yeah, does he wear sunglasses? Like snow-blind sunglasses, though? Because you'd need something like that on that planet. Ah, we can't forget about 
Mimas, which is another Greek person. Mm-hmm. Um, Saturn's small moon Mimas, despite its death star look, is a actually just a ball of almost pure water ice about 198 kilometers across. It gives a whole new meaning uh, in terms of going to the store to get some ice for the cooler, right? No one does that anymore. <laughs> no, oh, we do. No, we don't. I get ice at Quickie all the time. Continuing with the snowy moon theme, though. How about Triton? Neptune's largest moon is Triton. It has one of the coldest surfaces in our solar system. Triton's atmosphere consists mainly of nitrogen rather than water, making the ice pink there in color. There you go. Pink snow. Boom. Any aliens living there would feel very calm. Cold, but calm. Exactly. Way out there, at the far reaches of the solar system, is Pluto. Ah, Poor Pluto, one little outsider. Yeah. Is it a planet or a moon? A planet or a moon? Which well, is it's it? Not, it's not a moon. It's a planet. It's a, no, it's not a planet. No, it's something. It's a planetoid or something. In 2016, scientists with the New Horizons mission discovered a mountain chain on the dwarf planet Pluto where the mountains are caped with methane, snow, and ice. Mm. Snow-capped mountains on Pluto look a lot like snow-capped mountains on Earth. Someday... That planet's going to be like the the shishi place to go downhill skiing. The intergalactical Mont Tremblant. <laughs> Closer into the sun, even than us, is Mercury. NASA's Messenger spacecraft provided compelling support for the long-held hypothesis that Mercury harbors abundant water, ice, and other frozen volatile materials in its permanently shadowed polar craters. The 2011 mission to Mercury's detected... What appears to be water, ice, and craters around Mercury's poles. I think we covered the whole solar system, Lily. Lots of strange ice and snow out there. Um, snow and ice probably exist outside our solar system, too. Kepler is 1,730 light years away from Earth. Wow. It's nine times more massive than Jupiter, and it orbits very close to its star. The Hubble Space Telescope detected evidence of titanium oxide. The mineral used in sunscreen um, in this planet's upper atmosphere. The planet's strong gravity might cause the titanium oxide to fall down as snow. I can't imagine how hard that snow is. Oh titanium God, snow, titanium you fall down snow. on that, there's no give. No, Boom. No, it's thank like getting you. concrete. There's plenty of other places in the solar system and probably the universe that are home to snow as well. Astronomers have now discovered over 10,000 exoplanets that exist outside our solar system. Some of them are really cool. They're like the rainbow-colored planets. They're awesome. Really, it's just astounding how many planets they're actually discovering. I mean, it used to be 10 years ago, no one even thought they'd ever see a planet beyond our solar system. Thanks, Lily. Time for the bucket list. Mike May, welcome to Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Hey, man, it's been too long. It has been too long. It's really great to be here. I'm glad you're still doing all sorts of outdoor stuff and I assume lots of fishing. Oh, yeah. You know it. You know it. It's ice fishing season now. So we're on that frozen ice with the snowmobile, you know, drilling holes through two feet of ice now and uh, with lots of snow on top. But you know what? It's rainy today. So that'll take care of the, the snow depth a bit and it'll and then it'll freeze tomorrow. and It'll be all like a lunar landing surface. Yeah, well, I love the cold weather when I'm skiing. But uh, what you're talking about on ice fishing, um, <clears throat> I think I'll just participate virtually. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and I say the same thing when I hear about your skiing escapades. But that's why I wanted to talk to you. You know, like Paralympics and 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 downhill skiing, and you were totally involved in a lot of that stuff, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. You know, I watched the Olympics, and I get excited just remembering being in the Olympic Village. And uh, I've I've had a lot of different roles in in how the the scheme. Uh, has evolved at least alpine skiing starting out in uh, 1982 in switzerland and 84 in austria and this is before it was the paralympics at that time part of our mission was to try to get some sort of parallel visibility and competitiveness um, relative to the regular olympics which didn't happen, I don't think, until 88 or 92. So how long had you been competitive downhill skiing at that point? Yeah, I did it in the 80s, and I, I won six medals, three bronze, three gold. Um, and then through a, a set of very unique circumstances, I ended up at the Sarajevo Regular Olympics wow. uh, World Winter Games, and I skied a, a demonstration run at those games at, at, in Sarajevo. Oh, that's so cool. And, and you set some records too, like some speed records. And this is before parabolic skis and all this. These are just straight on old ski boards, right? Yeah. When, when you're speed skiing, um, you don't want anything parabolic. You just want long, wide, stable, because you're just going straight. You don't have to worry about turns. So it's very different than your normal alpine skiing. And I set off on that quest because I thought the problem with blind people skiing gates is a sighted person they need to go an eighth of an inch away from that gate on either side as they go down right left right left hmm. well a blind person can't get that close with your guy even even low vision skiers can't get that close and as a totally blind skier you probably want to be a foot away from those gates mm -hmm. some people are two or three feet away so you don't you can't go as fast and i thought well boy if we had removed these gates then I could be competitive with a sighted person. And that's exactly what speed skiing is. You go to the top, they have timing gates at a steep section of the middle. You just go straight and you're timed in that uh, particular 100 meter section. The tricky part is that your guide can't go in front of you the way they would normally skiing. We figured out that they had to be uh, behind you and you have a helmet that goes all the way down to your neck, covers your entire head, so you can't hear anything, and you have to communicate via radio. The interesting challenge was that no insurance companies in the U.S. would allow me to compete in the official races. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Blackcomb Whistler and do it. And I went there. Same thing happened at Blackcomb. And then somebody says, well, go to Europe. They don't care. And sure <laughs> enough, I went to Les Arcs, France which had an amazing steep run with the, the guys that are hitting 130, 135 miles an hour. And uh, I was able to, to do some skiing there and have a really nice wide open run out. And that's really where I set my record in 1988 in Les Arcs, France. How fast? Well, 65 miles an hour, which sounds a lot, but my goal was 100 miles an hour. I could say I broke 100 kilometers, but yeah. I wanted hundred miles an hour yeah. and uh, the snow came in. We were just doing a training run at that point. The snow came in, it snowed for a week. And at that point I had to go home and go back to work. And so we never really got to 
do the full course from the top to, to see if I could hit that uh, 100 mile an hour level. To get the speed, you need the crispy snow, I guess, right? Nice, yeah. hard pack, smooth, no ripples. You hit the smallest bump and you'll get launched. And there's a very small club that um, has fallen over 100 miles an hour. And that, uh, that hurts, that burns. I can't imagine. You know, that was really my competitive years were the 80s and, and some of the 90s. And then I went on to the celebrity circuit, you know, which is what sort of retired people do. But a lot of people wanted to see a blind person ski. And so I, I got to get a lot of visibility doing that and raise money for a foundation. And then I got to go to the 2010 Winter Olympics as a representative of President Obama's White House and mix with the, the, the skiers and the sledders and everybody at that competition. And uh, that was absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed being back in the thick of it again, albeit not skiing. What do you think of snowboards when you're out there on your skis? Very noisy. Oh my gosh. It's good and bad news. They're, they're just intimidating. They're, they're coming down the hill behind you. You think, oh my gosh, they're going to run me over Yeah. when they're not even that close. And yeah. I did try snowboarding a couple of days and it wasn't long enough to get good at it. So I've, I've avoided that. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, my guide yesterday was on a snowboard and makes them louder as a guide. So oh. kind of interesting. They have a different pattern of turn. So that takes some adjusting. Mm -hmm. But if, if he tries to round his turns a little more and I listen to the loudness of his board, it uh, works out okay. As long as you don't somehow transfer to the another snowboarder by mistake. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> Mike, what about mental readiness and physical readiness? Do you focus on the two? Like, is one more important than the other when you're going into competitive skiing like that? I think you need to have both a mental and physical preparedness. The physical part is almost easier than the mental. At least it's easier to control. You know, if you're in good shape, <clears throat> the more you ski, the better you get. It's a pretty simple equation. Mentally, I always struggled. I rarely slept the night before a race, and that wasn't a good thing to go out on ad adrenaline fumes. Mm. I, in speed skiing, I always had this uh, thinking going on in my head. I, I'm at the top of the run, and I think, when I get down to the bottom, this is the last time I'm doing this. I'm never <laughs> doing this again. And because I'm so nervous. And then yeah. I get to the bottom, and I think, ah, shoot. I could do this a little bit better. Let me just do it one more time. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> adrenaline's same, pumping. Same stupid cycle. Yeah. 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 It's that first step, isn't it? That first step is the one that's the hardest. Do you, do you find though, like when you're at the top of the hill that you have a bit of advantage? Like I remember when I could see a little bit and going skiing and looking down at the top of the hill, looking down at the run going, Oh my goodness, this is not like my toboggan hill where I learned to ski. This is, this is serious. And now when I go skiing, I don't see it. So I just, oh, all right, we're starting here. Okay. Boom. Gone. You know, it, like it's just, you, if you don't see it, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. You just take it as it comes. Well, I find it's important that the guide give me a layout before we start skiing, describe yeah. the terrain. Uh, is it a fall left or right straight bumps? It's, it's at least as far as they can see. Mm -hmm. And some guides exaggerate what it is. And then that psychs me out. Oh. So I think part of it is for them to give you an accurate description, but uh, don't overdo it. Or even though you can't see it, you'll be mentally psyched out. Yeah, I hear you. And, and when they get, when your guy gets psyched out because of other skiers around you and um, the activity level, 
it sort of starts to get me a little panicky too. Cause I, I'm like you, I don't want to hit anybody. I'm a bigger fella. You know, I'm 220. I don't want to hurt someone. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And, and there's so many people that are oblivious out there. That's why I like to find places where there aren't people. We, we've had people ski between us. When you have, you're talking two meters between us, somebody skis between, they don't even say sorry. They look at the bib and guide's bib says guide. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they think is that it says blind and maybe some kind of gimmick. <laughs> they don't even think about it. Just right between you, off they go. What about backcountry? You know, this, this whole idea of you, you climb up and then you ski back down on a, on a slope. That's not even a sort of a sanctioned slope. It's just a, a side of a mountain. You're right there amongst all these mountains. Do you go backcountry sometimes? I have not. I have not. My son, who's a ski patroller at Sugar Bowl in Tahoe, he backcountries all the time. Uh, 12 months out of the year, he's, he's proud to say he, can, he skis every month. So he finds glaciers. He finds snow. And he goes in some pretty hairy situations. He's he is careful. He's always with somebody else. He analyzes the avalanche information. Uh, but I have not done that. He's he's encouraged me to go. And if I ever want to, I, I have the resources. But uh, I I kind of like a more predictable situations. I, I will say that it's on my bucket list mm-hmm. to go helicopter skiing, and some of the best is in Canada mountain top you know you're skiing down the side of a mountain it's all snowy it's beautiful the last third is trees because you know once you get so far down a mountain it's trees tree skiing is 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 tricky and because there's branches it's not just missing the tree it's the branches that are down low and yeah uh, and you don't want to get stuck in a tree well that's the big thing you fall under these under the tree where there's no snow and you can go down 10 15 feet right yeah yep yeah bad accidents have happened so Outdoor tips and tech. Talk to me about how you select your skis and, and how do you do your communications to really push the envelope like this? Well, when I first started competing in 1982 and we went to Switzerland, the t- normal technique for blind skiing was to have the guide behind because mm. it's easier for them. They can look ahead. They can suss out the situation, tell the blind person, turn at 11 o'clock. And that works okay recreationally. And when there aren't a lot of people around, you aren't going through the trees. But we discovered if you wanted to be more precise, you had to have the guide in front. And we actually had to work with a technical committee to allow this because you had to do a some modification of the timing system. So the guide wasn't triggering the timer when they went through the gate ahead of you. And we won three gold medals handily. When we came back in 1984 to the next international competition, everybody else had switched to front guiding and I won three bronze medals. That was kind of a mixed blessing because uh, I, I felt good that we introduced the technique, but of course I wanted to win the gold. Could, did you have some vision at that point? I don't no. think so. None, eh? No, I had no vision. And, and we, tried, uh, we tried radios. Uh, and it's one place, you, you know, how techy I am. And mm-hmm. uh, I like technology in most situations. But in skiing, there's nothing that can beat your ears in terms of being close behind the guide, listening to the sound of their skis, listening to the way that their head bobs around as they call out directions, the nuances that you get 
through hearing is so much better than anything you would get if somebody was just talking to you on a radio and giving you very monoral information. I've never skied like as a blind person. I've never skied with someone in front of me, but, but you're on the slope. It's just you and your guide, right? So the, the, really, you, I've never even thought about this, but you're really just listening to their skis and you're following the sound of their skis, just like when I'm ice fishing and we're pulling our huts out onto the, uh, onto the frozen lake. I just follow the sound of the sled being dragged in front of me. Yeah, exactly. And there's so much information you can learn from that. My guide and I, Ron, um, wrote a manual, an alpine skiing and guiding manual 20 plus years ago. And uh, it's still relevant because technology has not changed. Now the skis have changed. They're, they are more parabolic. Uh, they're shorter. Uh, a lot of the, the equipment has changed in other ways or the equipment that you wear and the helmets, all of that. But in terms of how you guide and how you listen to your skier, it's quite proven. And there, amazingly, there was just an article in the New York Times Magazine a week ago. Somehow a reporter got interested in how um, guiding blind skiers worked and called me up and had this same conversation with her and it got published in the New York uh, magazine. So what about if you're on fresh snow? Because my experience is fresh snow is silent. You run silent. You, you have no idea how fast you're going because you don't have that audio feedback and you don't have the clickety clack feedback either of your skis on, on the crispy stuff. You, you have no idea except the wind in your face. And I, I, blind people told me early on other skiers, Lawrence, don't ski with goggles or, or a scarf on your face. You won't know how fast you're going. You really need to feel that wind on your uh-huh. face. Yeah. Well, the good news is when it's quiet, when you're on soft snow, then you can hear guides voice better. Ah, yes. When it's loud and windy. And yesterday I was skiing. It was super hard packed. We haven't had any snow in the Tahoe area in six weeks. We got a little bit yesterday, but it was loud. And Mm. so my guide has to be loud, but I can't hear his voice as well, but I hear his skis. So when he gets quiet, then his voice is much more apparent and I can um, uh, follow that. It kind of fills in the difference. The funny thing is when I'm when you're speed skiing, yeah. picture you have no hearing and no sight. I mean, you are deaf blind because your your head is covered up by this highly padded helmet. And all you can hear is the speakers built into the helmet and the guide's radio. So in between, you get in a tuck and you minimize air resistance. So you get down there, you're going 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, and you think, huh. I don't think I'm going that fast yet (laughs) until you stand up. Yeah. And then it would be the equivalent of stick your head out of a a sunroof in the car and you know what kind of blowback that would be. That's what it feels like when you stand up from space. Oh my goodness. That's so cool. You learn different techniques. You can drag a pole that tells you something. Yeah. Uh, I I like to make lots of turns because I find that particularly when there's varied terrain or there's bumps, if I'm turning all mm-hmm. the time, like going boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Then I have more sense of the fall line and what's happening. And then if some people like to just go across the slope from side to side and, and you get going fast in those turns, in those uh, traverses, but yeah, uh, I don't like it as much as making turns going straight down. I'm like you. I, I like just to get into my own rhythm. It's like a dance almost, but you, if you can call those turns yourself, it's so much more... Uh, enjoyable i find instead of always waiting for the guide to call a turn and then you think when's it going to happen when's it going to happen always that anticipation it sort of takes away a little bit i find yeah and a a good guide will 
will look down a fall line, they'll pick something that looks like a good rhythm. And it really is a dance. So you can zone out and just turn in that rhythm that they set. Hmm. And then if it's really wide open and there's nobody around, no, no poles in the middle of the run or anything, the guide will just say, Hey, it's all yours. Just ski. And I'll tell you when to stop that. That's a lot of fun too. You can go out there and figure things out for yourself, or you can do some research and learn from others. The problem for people with low or no sight is that there's not a ton of information out there. Thank goodness there's pioneers like Mike May just going out there and doing it, and then sharing what they learned afterwards. The funny thing, though, is when people latch on to people who set new ways of doing things as someone without sight, they treat them as if they were some sort of superhero. I'm not saying Mike is one of these or ever sought out that kind of status. I'm just saying there's enough of them around. Tune in next episode to hear from Mike May on what it's like to get your sight back after being blind almost your entire life. He went blind at age two. Is he sighted? Is he still blind? I'll let you decide. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. We're dropping new episodes every Friday, folks. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments on your podcast provider's site so other people will learn about our new show. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMIAudio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.